Hello, I'm Ian Campbell from Palliative Care Australia. Welcome to Thursdays at Three, our weekly video and podcast series, talking to people living and working at the end of life. A special conversation today to mark Advanced Care Planning Week with Dr. Will Cairns, a palliative medicine specialist, a consultant emeritus working out of Townsville University Hospital and an associate professor at the James Cook University. And just like me, you wear floral shirts well, Will. Good to see them out in force today. Well, thank you. Actually, I'm up on the Atherton Tablelands, not in Townsville. I'm on the country of the Durable and uh, Nguyen people. Um, it's about 80 k's west of Cairns, up at 750 metres above sea level. So it's quite cool at this time of year, which is great. Beautiful place. And I'm on the lands of the Ngunnawal people in Canberra. Well, thanks so much for your time today. Many will know your face, your work and your wisdom. We're here to talk about advanced care planning. Let's start at the start. What's the elevator pitch? What is advanced care planning? I suppose there are lots of ways of looking at it, but it's how people can prepare for the things that might happen to them uh, with their health in the future and make sure or try to make sure that the things that happen to them reflect their preferences. So modern medicine offers so many things that can uh, improve and prolong our lives. Um, But I suppose at the end, everyone dies at the end of their life and there comes a time when further medical interventions won't provide them with uh, the quality of life that they would prefer to have. So eventually there are choices that must be made uh, and when people can prepare for them, uh, prepare themselves, uh, prepare their family and prepare their health workers, then they're much more likely to achieve the things that they want for themselves. So advanced care planning is really, a, I guess, a, a modern instrument, a, a result of the fact of medical advances that we're all living much longer. Yeah, so it's a, mod, it's a necessity that comes out of it if we want to maintain our autonomy. I suppose if you think back to 200 years when 30% of people died before the age of 10 uh, and um, another 30% died before the age of 60, life was very different and there weren't the technologies that we have now that can prolong lives and improve the quality of life. So I think the focus certainly for the um, up until, let's say, the last 10 or 20 years was very much on uh, extending life and curing disease. But gradually and progressively over the past, say, 20 or 30 years, people have come to realise that actually there comes a time when we need to think about what is in our interests, um, given the fact that uh, all lives must end. You perhaps just answered my, my next question, all lives must end. Who should be doing this sort of planning? Sounds like we all should. Well, I think we all should, and I think that um, <clears throat> advanced care planning is something that unfolds over a lifetime. In a sense, we all make sort of advanced care plans um, throughout our lives, but obviously the circumstances under which we may come to the end of our life will vary. When we're young, it tends to be accidents or rare or uncommon diseases, um, and as we get older, we're more likely to get the degenerative diseases of old age. So the circumstances change and our goals change as well uh, over that time. So when we're younger, we tend much more to focus on life prolongation. Um, but as we get uh, older and we approach the natural end to a 
a full life and we may think, well, actually, the quality of my life's been pretty good. I've had a wonderful full life, so I'm willing to accept that this is the time for my life to end. And so we make choices that um, that can fulfill that realisation and uh, make the end of our life much more peaceful. Just as an example, I had a relative who uh, was in her 90s and she had completed not for a suscitation order uh, and uh, because she had had the fullest of full lives and having a bit more time wouldn't make wouldn't make her life any more full and she was likely to have a steady deterioration and so she had not for a sustation order in her medical record and so she had collapsed in her residential aged care facility but had come back again and then she went to the hospital and her, she had a cardiac arrest and because the, the staff in the hospital had a medical record electronic medical record which included her not for not for cpr order then she um that was adhered to these conversations i guess the conversations around end of life and the sort of care the sort of quality of life we want to have are perhaps conversations that can happen informally around the dinner table, around a cuppa, around the, the barbecue. Why is it important to go that next step and, I guess, formalise those conversations and, and, and set yourself up with an advanced care plan? Yeah. Well, I think even the informal conversation can be beneficial as well because if people have said, oh, I'd never like to be like that or and then they've, yeah. then their family find themselves in the position of having to make decisions, say someone's had a big stroke or a head injury in an accident, then the family will know that this is what the person's expressed to them. So it makes their decision-making on behalf of the patient easier. And I remember going to a conference once and sitting next to a, a parent whose child had um, become an organ donor through as a consequence of an accident. And they said that their child, several weeks or months before the accident happened, had said uh, they'd seen a program on television about organ donation. And so the child said, oh, if that ever happened to me, that's what I'd like to have happen. So that allowed them to feel that even though it was an informal event, they still knew that that's what the, the child had expressed to them. And so that made them made their decision about organ donation much better and i think that if nothing else the purpose of the greatest benefit one of the greatest benefits of advanced care planning is it does help families to understand uh why decisions are made so if the patient has created a document but it, uh, then they can understand why the patient did that um, and make it easier for them because it's a time of great emotion and grief when someone's at the end of their life um, uh, but if they haven't made a document, then they find themselves in the position of having to make decisions. And even with documents, of course, patients, uh, even with documents, um, sometimes illnesses happen that don't fit the bill. And so people yeah. are um, having to make decisions that they didn't anticipate because it was impossible to anticipate that those choices would be necessary. And so it helps them with that difficult challenge. Do you have some advice for us, uh around that how do you know what you want until you're there can you get us in that headspace what sort of thinking um, do we do beforehand well i think when you're young it's much harder to imagine what it's like and people to be uh, in a position where you might not want something done um or you might want something done so so i guess you have to ask yourself the question and then 
then be honest with yourself about the answer that you give yourself, if that makes sense. I think mm-hmm. as people get older, it does get easier because people become aware of their uh, changing overall health status and their, their diminution of their capacities, whether it's physical or mental. Or um, So they have a better sense of how things are changing over the course of their life, and so it becomes easier to do that. Um, and so they find it easier. But I, I think... The first thing is you have to, uh, when I've done it myself, and I think that it's important to recognise that healthcare workers are humans too, and so yes. they face these issues. Um, and so you, you as health workers, we need to ask ourselves, you know, what would, what would be a satisfactory quality of life for me? And I suppose that's the bottom line about these things. Is we're making decisions about how we would, what we would like done to us uh, in terms of what those actions can achieve for us. So um, when I was younger, I didn't have an advanced care directive of any kind because I felt that there was no need because at that stage I would want everything done for me. My family knew what my wishes would be in general terms about quality of life, but I would want to be assessed before as to what the prognosis was, What you know, what the, if I suddenly became unwell, then I would want people to resuscitate me in the first instance because um, I might be restored to a full level of independence and activity. But uh, if it became apparent that I wasn't going to be able to be independent, then perhaps I would want to have a different assessment of how I should be or different decisions made on my behalf. But as I've gotten older, I now do have an advanced health directive in Queensland. It's an advanced health directive in other states that may be an advanced care directive. The terminology changes. Uh, we'll come to that, I think. Um, yes. uh, and it talks about uh, what kind of life would be acceptable to me uh, were someone else to have to make decisions on my behalf or uh, as a directive uh, about what kind of care I would like to have. So my directive is not a directive about what to do and what not to do. It's how to assess what should be done. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Well, I, I guess so. I guess it's a matter yeah. of hopping, in, hopping into the process and, and making a start on it and, and, and starting to, I guess, get comfortable with it and have those conversations with yeah. yourself. Is, is that a good way to, yeah. to, to get into this? Just well, to I make think a so, start? yeah. I think it is very, yes, you've got to start somewhere. Uh, sometimes uh, the patient initiates it, but some people are a bit wary of doing that. Um, sometimes families do it around the dining room table, um, and I think that can be a very effective way of doing it because everyone has to participate, um, uh, and that can be quite confronting. But on the other hand, it can be quite liberating because we all, I think, uh, I think about our mortality at some level from time to time, if not constantly. Um, and we sort of think about what would happen if kinds of things. Uh, and I think the normalisation of death is, is a really important part of having learning how to deal with uh, the realities of the limits of healthcare. I think mm-hmm. we, we sort of, we used to be confronted by death very commonly in back in the 19th and first half of the 20th century and well infinitely back into our past but we sort of got distracted by technology and focused so much on life prolongation that no one really gave much thought to not doing it so when yes. i was a junior doctor we resuscitated everyone 
even if they were you know dying we'd jump on them and it was you know it was unkind and futile and undignified and um probably unpleasant if the person was able to be aware of it at all uh and i think we've realized that with the limits of modern technology and the fact that now as a consequence of our success we might we can end up very disabled and unwell and frail and elderly and maybe that's not where we all wanted to be maybe there were times when we might have decided that wasn't appropriate and unless you have the conversations you never explore those things and what better time to have those conversations than advanced care planning week and and sit Absolutely. around the table with family as you as yeah. you suggest and start to have that conversation and and see where it, it takes you well i'm wondering um about your experience as a as a palliative care doctor and the times when you've fallen back on an advanced care directive or an advanced care plan and working with a with a family and and the power that comes in those moments for you as a doctor and also for the family as well where the benefit of doing these sort of having these conversations and doing this work really starts to shine how have you seen that play out in your career uh, well, I suppose when someone is referred to palliative care in a way, that's a message in itself. Sometimes the referral is the message, but many patients have considered these things. And even if they're treating, disease-treating doctors haven't discussed them with them, um, I've found that patients have often actually been thinking about it, actually preparing for their death. They, people know when they have a life-ending illness and that most people are not surprised when they are referred to palliative care. Sometimes their families have not, they and their families have not been offered the opportunity to have conversations. And I've um, not uncommonly found that it, in when we've sat down for conversation, the patient will say, well, do you understand what your illness is? And they usually say, yeah, I have advanced cancer or bad heart disease or whatever. And uh, then we start to talk about what their wishes and hopes are. And sometimes that no one has actually got around to talking to them about what they wanted. Um, and they've often found that to be a liberating experience to be able to talk about it because someone at least yeah. has acknowledged to them that they understand this is an issue they've been thinking about already. Um, mm -hmm. So the issue has not been that they haven't been thinking about it, but that they haven't been given the opportunity to talk about it. And so there have been, I guess, all palliative care workers would have had deep and serious conversations with patients about their fears and anxieties and what their goals were. But at the same time, getting this, these issues out into the open can be quite comforting and for people because mm -hmm. we can then talk about what we can achieve for them. We can talk about their goals. And uh, as a palliative care doctor, obviously a referral has been made because a person can't be cured from their illness and their death is um, the outcome of what's been happening to them. Uh, but we emphasise that um, rather than focusing on the death, we're trying to improve the fact of death. We're trying to improve the quality of their remaining life and, yes. and how and where they will spend their time and what things they need to do and how we can support them to achieve that and how we'll try to make them as comfortable as possible and so on and so forth. So, And I think we shift the focus away from their disease and onto them and as a person. So just as an example, I had a patient um, who not long before I retired from clinical work, who um, 
uh, was in quite significant pain with an advanced cancer. And so we went in, I went in just on our first ward round to meet her for the first time and she looked very distressed. And so I just started talking to her about her disease. And then I said, what did you, what was your, what kind of work did you do? And she said, I used to do, I was a professional singer. I used to do cover singing in clubs and things for Doris Day. So um, I pulled out my mobile phone and downloaded a couple of Doris Day songs like K Sarah Sarah. Yeah. And we played it to her. And so you could, it was almost like a light bulb and lit up because suddenly we shifted from a focus on her disease to a focus on her as a person. And so without saying changing our goals of care or her understanding of what was happening to her, but the shift away from her thinking all the time about her disease to her as a person was uh, transformational. And uh, because she felt supported and valued as a person, we were talking to her as a person, not as a per- uh, someone who happened to be car- a cancer. I don't like to think of her as cancer, but sometimes people have been described, patients have been described as the patient, the cancer in bed three rather than the person who was a cover singer for Doris Day who happened to have cancer was in bed three. Um, yes. And so she cha- changed her last three days of her life because she didn't live much longer. We adjusted her medication, so that may have done a lot for her pain, but her morale was so much better and that influenced that as well. And it wasn't a miraculous thing we did, but what we did was talk about her as a human being. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that was really valuable and uh, didn't really change our plans either. So it's a bit, not really advanced care planning, but it's how you engage with people to help them to be um, able to live better lives. Well, as you say, these conversations only perhaps happen when someone gets a referral to, to the palliative care unit, to the palliative care service. But, but I tend to think these conversations... Uh, uh, equally as powerful um, earlier on in, in the piece as, as well. What advice would you have for for doctors, for nurses who perhaps do have an opportunity to have those conversations much earlier in a patient's trajectory before they get to palliative care, yeah. but perhaps those doctors and nurses don't necessarily have the training to, to have these conversations. What advice would you have for those, those colleagues? Uh, well, I think it, uh, perhaps I, I tend to emphasise the cases that I've seen who haven't had those conversations before. So I don't think it's fair to say that they never do. I think it's mm-hmm. much more to say that the, the, when they haven't had them, you tend to get, uh, makes it more challenging for them. Um, gotcha. But I, I think that uh, uh, there is has been such a focus on technical aspects of medicine, and that's dem- very demanding of time. Uh, and... Uh, I think that what palliative care has tended off to people is time for a conversation um, mm-hmm. because we don't do much to people. We prescribe a few things, but much of what we do is just sitting and talking and listening and reassuring uh, and being with the person. And that's quite challenging for many clinicians, but making a little bit of time can make a huge difference to the patient. Uh, and I have know, I know many doctors who work in other fields do spend time with their patients. That's really important. I think um, there has been a tendency not to include communication skills about end of life in the training for other fields of medicine. I think that's a really important thing to do. I know that nurses often say that patients talk to them in the middle of the night when the ward is quiet. And so it's often nurses who have the opportunity to have conversations with patients 
um, because all the other patients are asleep and the ones who are thinking about those issues. And so nurses in particular are able to do that. But any health worker can ask how people are feeling. Uh, is there anything you're worried about? Um, have you talked to your family about the things that are concerning you? Because I think that all those kinds of things can encourage that. Um, and even to use the words, have you done the advanced care planning to do, deal with this? Um, I think GPs traditionally have a slight advantage uh, when they've been able to uh, have had a long-term relationship with the person. So they may have known them or in theory, GPs know people. I think I know with the current crisis in general practice, that's become more difficult. But when you've known someone over many years, then actually you know them as a person through a range of other illnesses, uh, many non, non, not particularly serious. So you know their family relationships and you can provide that kind of support for them. So general practitioners have a particular role. We were just picking up a, a, a point you made earlier around there perhaps being different terminology, different rules, different regulations around advanced care planning when you cross state boundaries. Is, is that an issue we need to fix? Do we need a national approach to advanced care planning? Uh, well, I think there is a national agreement trying to standardise the documents, but they exist in the context of different state laws. So there's a sort of an inter, a gridlock of... Uh, legal issues that make it very difficult and the lawyers in the different states have different perspectives on it. I think it's important not to equate the documents with the process. So advanced care planning is a broad process which starts with informal conversations. Um, uh, generally, there's no rush with it, except if someone gets acutely ill in an emergency and they don't have any documentation Uh Doctors sometimes have to make decisions without the opportunity for consultation. If it's a really, you know, someone comes in, you may have to decide whether to continue with CPR or whether to start it in the first place um, without. But if the document, in general, people do have time if they've had the been given the opportunity to have conversations, even if they're a well person, um, and it's a process that unfolds over a lifetime. The documents are merely the means of recording and communicating and ensuring the implementation of decisions that are made through conversation and discussion. Um, and I think uh, I, obviously, working in Queensland, have had experience with the documents we have here, and I'm familiar with them. But every state has its own suite of documents, and one of the best places to find that, and I think you're going to circulate the. Um, internet address for uh, Advanced Care Planning Australia and they have a page which Lee can take you to each state's documents and explain their use and give you links to the state. So people working in, um, in dealing with people who are doing advanced care planning need to understand the regulations and rules and documents in their state. But the process is the same everywhere, which is um, having the conversations, informing your family, discussing it with your doctor, understanding the illnesses that might influence the decisions you want to make or decisions that are made on your behalf, um, and then turning that into a plan of some kind, documents that document that, and then making sure that your doctor and your family and your hospital, if you have a hospital or your clinic, if you say a patient on dialysis, for example, would need an advanced care plan. Uh, and then that if you're in a situation where, say, you didn't want a resuscitation, then that not for resuscitation order was available. 
um, I should say that my uh, relative who had the cardiac arrest in the emergency department, actually after everyone stood and watched and then after 30 seconds their heart started back up again. So then the family were left with a dilemma, what do you do? And so after some discussion, they decided that uh, while they were accepting of the fact the person could have died and that would have been okay, sad, of course, and they would have grieved, so it wasn't denying any of those things, they decided that a pacemaker would be the appropriate course of action. That was an unexpected decision to make, but... They, had, they were empowered to do that because they were the substitute decision-maker. The person didn't have the capacity at that stage to do that, so she had a pacemaker put in. Uh, yeah. So not to stop her from dying, but so that she would be less likely to fall over and break a hip or bang a head or anything like mm-hmm. that. So it was about maintaining her quality of life, and so that was the f- decision that was made by the family. So sometimes the documents don't cover all eventualities, but you still have to make decisions based on their the person's preferences. So the yeah, that was an well, is, story. Is um, I guess we're all familiar with making a will, and I know my own experience was: you get married, you have kids, you get a mortgage, you need a will, Ian. Should yeah. an advance care plan and these sort of discussions be lumped in with doing a will in a way? And then, well, I think having, yeah. Well, I think they are often now. Solicitors often do that. I gave a talk to some solicitors in North Queensland a couple of occasions over the past 10 years or so, talking about integrating advanced care planning into the process of creating wills. And nowadays people do an enduring power of attorney. In Queensland it's called an enduring power of attorney um, with their will. Now that may or may not include health matters, but the solicitors tend to have discussions with people about those things. Um and uh, so that just provides another opportunity. Uh, if you're doing a will when you're 20, your uh, healthcare goals may be very different from when you're 90. Um, yes. And obviously you have different responsibilities, so you may wish to you'd be more likely to um, uh, want to live longer to support the upbringing of your children, but also can deal with other health matters as well. So I remember talking to a person who got an encephalitis um, as a random event and they had a business and they're, they're, um, they're, they had a will, but they also had a, a appointed a substitute decision maker with an enduring power of attorney for financial matters. And that meant that their spouse could continue the, to run the family business by signing the paychecks to the people while a patient recovered from their encephalitis. So they're, they're connected to those matters as well. And I know in the different states, the rules about substitute decision makers for health matters and legal matters and financial matters vary, so it's important to understand those. Um, but over the course of our lives, our, our, our goals um, do change and so our care directives change. So one of the most important things to do is uh, to recognise those times when you might need to change. So the, the diagnosis of a new illness or um, as you get older, things may change as well. People can use the uh, annual health check or the 75-year-old health check as a trigger for do you have an advanced care plan? Oh, I just have to hang up the telephone, sorry. Um, yeah. Um, so, 
was I saying? Uh, yeah, using those markers in your life. To... Oh, yeah, yeah, milestones, yeah. So events yeah. Like, a, like a health check for the health doctor to say or other health workers to say, oh, by the way, do you have an uh, advanced care director, advanced health director, have you done the advanced care planning? Um, and done when you're well, it's much easier to do as a hypothetical than when you're actually sick because it's less confronting. But if you've done it when you're well, then you're better prepared to deal with it when you get sick. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your work with us today and the motivation around advanced care planning, a really empowering conversation. And as you say, there'll be links to more information and support within the show notes. Thank you so much for your time today, Will. Thank you very much, Ian. It's a great pleasure. Whether you're tuned in via Spotify, YouTube or one of our socials, thanks so much for taking part in the Thursdays at 3 conversation. You can support Palliative Care Australia and our advocacy work by making a donation via the link in the show notes. You'll also find more information and support on the PCA website. Take care and we'll talk again soon.